Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. The horror genre is a wide and varied one. Its roots in dreams, in fears, both earned and imagined. Death and pain and loss are at the root of it, but it goes way beyond that. Film artists have long imagined the most fanciful and frightening of creatures to feed our nightmares, and we gladly devour them. Mankind is capable of horrendous acts, and they too are the stuff of our cinematic nightmares. Horror is rude, and it's meant to be, and it also is as exhilarating as a roller coaster ride. But as in medicine and law, horror is filled with specialization. George Romero was not just a horror filmmaker, he was a zombie horror filmmaker. It got to the point that he wasn't allowed to make a movie that wasn't about the living dead, and it became his professional prison. External limits on an artist are a straitjacket for creativity, but George carried on to the end, able to bring his fresh perspective to an overloaded subgenre. With a few notable exceptions along the way, Wes Craven was likewise limited to mostly doing Elm Street films. And I've long been labeled not just a horror director, but a Stephen King horror director. I remember interviewing Christopher Lee back on my old Z Channel show, and it really bothered him that people thought of him as Count Dracula, despite making dozens of films playing dozens of other characters. The fact is, he wouldn't have been able to do all those other roles had it not been for the success of his Dracula. There is no shame in horror, nor in being typecast in a narrow slice of the genre pie. Having any kind of success is something to be grateful for, and the horror genre is a world I feel fortunate to be a part of. The mainstream may not love it or respect us, but this is the best club I can imagine being a member of. Our guest, Andrew Trauke, has a resume that is also incredibly specialized. Virtually all of his films are about the real-world horrors provided by nature in the form of its most frightening and carnivorous beasts, from jaguars to sharks to crocodiles and beyond. We'll get to speak with him about the hazards and pleasures of working in exotic locales with some of the world's most frightening creatures after this. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Cut to Care, a collection of little hurts by author Aaron Dries. An agency that sends social workers into the homes of grieving families to impersonate dead loved ones. The woman who saved a teenager's life, but who now finds herself haunted by the weight of a cheated suicide. The painful life of the daughter of a candlestick maker after her father's execution for making human chandeliers from drunken cowboys. These horrific stories and more, all based around the theme of caring in a world that doesn't always care for you back, stain the pages of Cut to Care, a collection of little hurts by Aaron Dries, author of Dirty Heads and the Fallen Boys. It also features an introduction by yours truly, Mick Garris, and I can speak to the quality of this collection. It's really, really beautiful work and gorgeously written 
by a very talented author. It's out now wherever good books are sold. Cut to Care. Out now from Dread, Tin Can. Cold, pale, and in the dark, Fret crashes back to consciousness inside a small metal chamber. Inside her confined cell, Fret attempts to piece together how she was imprisoned. As a scientist who was on the brink of discovering a cure from a deadly plague, Fret desperately works to escape her cell to save the last of humanity. Tin Can is available on demand now and coming to Blu-ray September 6th. So, Andrew, welcome to you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, it, it's a pleasure. I'm a big fan of your films. Oh, uh, the first you. one I saw was The Reef. How, how did it all start for you? Where did the interest in, in cinema overall begin for you? Well, the interest in cinema happened a long time before my first film um, because um, it's actually, you know, I'm not typical in that. It wasn't, you know, when I was just a young teenager. I actually, one day when I was in my, I guess, early 20s, stumbled on a set. Um, I was going to pick up my girlfriend at the time and she was a, a runner on this TV show. And um, there we were in the Australian, you know, there was all this bush around us, this big, vast landscape. And um I went into this little hut and there were these people all standing around, crouched around this one particular scene, lighting it. And I just thought, this is magic. You know, it felt like I was coming into something very magical, watching this, these smoke and mirrors being applied. And um, that's where I got hooked, really. I thought, wow, now I've seen the other side of the screen. Um, it really intrigues me how they do this and how they put it all together. And that's kind of how I set off on my journey. I kind of got into photography first and then into editing. And then, of course, if you want to really make a film, you've got to write a story. So I started writing. So what was your area of study before you got into film? Sure. So um, I, funnily enough, I was going to become an engineer, uh, but then I just couldn't, you know, it was just all too, um, I don't know, uh, logical or something. Um, and, and so... Um, <laughs> too left brain versus right brain. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't quite spontaneously creative. It was creative, but in a, in a very structured way. Um, and I sort of drifted for a while, and this is when I met this girl. And so I went back and got a, um, a degree in communications. Um, you know, so at one stage I was doing both science and communications. I think I wanted to be David Attenborough or something. Um, uh -huh. and, and, and then, yeah, then I just left it all and became got into film, and, and that sort of um, became my love. Well, documenting in film seems to be a particular trait of the movies that you've made. They all take place in real world, world situations. They aren't mythical creatures, um, but they, all of them so far, really involve real world terrors. So was that an intent? Was that a particular uh, interest of yours? Or was that a door that opened that led to other opportunities within that subgenre? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it, it wasn't directed like that. But I have to say, on reflection, sometimes I think maybe I'm some sort of weird, uh, mutated Dave Dattenbrough. No, it, it came about actually just to be realistic, out of, out of necessity, really, in that I had a bigger film as a sci-fi film that I was trying to get up. And um, it got very close and at the last minute it collapsed. And, you know, if you've been through that, you know, the pain of that. And, and so then I just had to reevaluate and I went, well, I'm a first time director, I'm going to have to do something uh, low budget. Um, and so I started looking around for ideas. And to tell you the truth, I, I, I put in Open Water, which, you know, a great film that was done for very little. 
and um, and at the same time, I've got two kids, and one of them had a blow up crocodile in the living room. <laughs> Don't ask why. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw open water. I saw the crocodile. I went, well, Australia's got lots of uh, crocodiles and top level predator as uh, like that. So um, I started researching crocodile stories, and I came across this one that I thought, oh, that would make a really good uh, film. So. Yeah, no, it really came out of yeah, the ashes of, a, of defeat, really, that I managed to make a script that I got made. Well, and indeed, it has informed your career since. Mm. Um, and so the decision made, you wrote the script for Blackwater, the crocodile film. Mm-hmm. Um, did you realize all of the challenges that you were setting for yourself? Well, yes and no. I mean, I'd done film because I I had a small production house that did films, you know, like Video, video clips and corporate things and things like that. So I knew that film. And, and I'd also done this TV series that uh, is never known about because it was 20 episodes or only five minutes long called Rocky Star, which is like a sci-fi musical to tell you the truth. It's but quite, it's like 20 years earlier. Yeah, 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 exactly. But I know, I knew that, uh, I know that, well, like I say, once you've seen the other side of the screen, you know some of the tricks. And I knew that I had this bag of um, B-grade, not B-grade, sorry, low effect, low budget, approaches I could take so that really informed how I went about this film because I knew I wasn't going to raise a lot of money so we were lucky in that Sydney where I live there are mangroves within 20-30 minutes of of my house so we didn't have to pay anyone to travel because you know all the and we we decided we're never going to use animatronics in a studio we're going to use real crocodiles so that solved all that problem so putting you know all these low budget strategies together um Look, it was still intense and hard, but at least it wasn't impossible. It wasn't, you know, me going, I haven't got, you know, the producer told me I haven't got enough money because, um, yeah, I, I'd thought it through from a production side as well as from a creative side. But there had to be things that sprung up when you're on a location as yeah. as open to disaster yeah. as, as a mangrove uh, yeah. and dealing with crocodiles. Um yeah. How was that wrangling them? Because I assume the script was pretty well worked out, very specific. But I would imagine when you're shooting the actual crocodile footage, that it could change the direction of your story. Absolutely. And the crocodile footage was difficult. I got chased by a crocodile. <laughs> luckily, it was, it, was, it was pretty tired by that stage. A crocodile ate one of our cameras, but luckily we got it back. We um, This is before, oh the, before the GoPro, so we had this camera in a water housing hanging over this cage and it, it had the chicken next to it but instead of going for the chicken the crocodile doesn't whack in fact the footage is in the film it, it you see the camera uh, the jaws of the crocodile just clamp over the camera and then all that was saving it was that i still had a, a cable that i was holding and i just had to hold this thing for about i don't know a minute or so until its jaw it's finally sort of weakened a little and i just ripped out of it oh, <laughs> The housing was, you know, this is a thick fiberglass housing. It's all punctured and it was horribly uh, damaged, yeah. Well, working in water anyway is always yeah. difficult, and we'll get to that with the ocean work. But yeah. e- even in rivers and mangroves and swamps yeah. and the like, it had yeah. to be incredibly challenging. I mean, you're stepping in muck and your feet yeah. are coming out of your shoes with every step. So so yeah. tell me, tell me what your production day was like in those Australian mangroves. Yeah, no, you're dead right. It was very muddy. And of course, the crew hate that because, you know, you got to touch something, you got a bit of mud on your hands, all of a sudden this very expensive equipment's got mud on his hands. But the hardest thing was that because, you know, if you know uh, mangroves, they're tidal, and this is set in a fully flooded river. So we only really had about three or four hours of water a day. 
Oh. Um, because then the tide would drop. <laughs> and so and there'd be, there were a lot of takes where the actors were actually with um, knee guards on, acting on their knees as though they're running. <laughs> <laughs> and things like that, just to tap the water for as long as we could because we were, once we would run out of it, we had to shoot up all the time. Luckily, half the film or not, a bit of the film's up in a tree. So, But, yeah, that was difficult. But, yeah, you're right, you know, there's bugs, there's mud. It's not a pleasant environment. I mean, it's actually, once the water's in, it's actually a very beautiful environment. If you just stand there and look across the mangroves, there's a lot of beauty in that. But, um, yeah, when the tide's out and all the mud's just, yeah, it's not good. Well, one of the hallmarks of all of your films is that when CGI is used, it's pretty flawless. I mean, it's very, very lifelike and hard to tell. I know part of that is editing, part of that is really great work, and you, but you have a lot of actual footage of crocodiles in this case, mm. sharks later. Mm. So um, tell me about how you went about that because it's not easy to get, to recreate a living creature believably on the screen. Yeah, no, it's not. Um, I noticed your Stephen King book there and, you know, there's a, you know, Dance Macabre, which you no doubt have read. Um, there's a wonderful line about once you see the zipper down the monster's back, the, the gig is over, you know. So for me, it's all about suspension of disbelief and making sure that the audience think this thing is as real as possible because that's, you know, I have a, one of my main philosophies of writing is that the, 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 what I call the big bad or the villain or the, is the protagonist is, is the main driving key of the drama. So they better be good and real and scary. Otherwise, you're just not going to care. Um, so, yeah, we do go and get real footage of the animals. And then once we've got that footage, we get the actors to act to that footage so that they can, we can marry them both together. So do you ever use stock footage and then plan uh, a scene around the footage, either that or the documentary footage that you shoot and plan a scene around it after you've shot something that, oh, this is great. We've got to work this into our story. I try and get the footage first. Yes, that's right. I try and get the footage and then work around that to see how it's going to work for the people. That's right. Exactly. Now, it's it's one thing for a crew to go through hellish circumstances, yeah. but for a director working with actors, mm. actors are another <laughs> another slice of life altogether. Yeah. And so tell me about how you would encourage them throughout these incredibly mm. challenging, particularly in the mangrove swamps um, and that interaction and and them reacting. Is it a ball, a tennis ball on a stick or yeah, 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 what? yeah. Um, well, the first thing is to be very upfront and just say it's not going to be, you know, a, 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 a drama set in a room. It's you're going to have to be physically. It's going to be physically challenging. Are you up for that? And they have to really want to. You know, you, you have to make them understand that it's going to be physically challenging. And 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 if they don't want to do that, they shouldn't take the role. So that's my first thing, which getting them. And and that actually works really well because most of them then rise to that challenge. They they want to do well in that sort of environment. They want to see if they can, you know, endure it. Um, and then just throughout, because the main thing actually with all of these films has been them getting cold because they're immersed in water. Um, and then it doesn't matter what time of the year or where it seems that after a certain amount of time in water, your body gets cold. Um, and so keeping them warm and and just, you know, making sure that the the makeup or the costume person is making them feel a bit loved in between takes so that they're not just sitting there shivering without anyone giving them a cup of tea or something like that. Um, so that's to get how I mainly get through the, the physical hardness of these shoots, just obviously being a little bit more careful, making sure they understand what they're getting into. Yeah. 
Tell me your process, particularly in this very specific subgenre, from from the writing to the conceptualizing. I mean, do you do you come up with the crocodile attack scenes and in, in a way, and then work around them? Do you work backwards? Do you start on page one and go to page one hundred, uh, or do you do it a scene at a time and a patchwork quilt? Yeah, no, I'm I'm very much. Um, I, I guess I I'm just a little bit scared of writing. Sometimes I don't want to get lost in that forest. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm very much a structuralist. If I can get the three acts and then the beats for those acts, and I know I've got a beginning, a middle, and end, then I'm in a in a note form. Then I'm happy to set off on the path. But if I'm trying to make it up as I go, I get quite scared. So yeah, no, I I make sure I have a set structure I, I probably break it down into two out 12 beats major beats and then i just break them down and keep on breaking them down but um yeah it's all about having a good taunt story and then making sure that your moments of uh suspense and horror are um as good as they can get and have you been drawn to the horror genre what were the movies that inspired you or the filmmakers who inspired you and was your mother watching jaws when you were born <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I am drawn actually, I, and and from you know I, I come at it all probably from a suspense. Like that to me is the biggest part I enjoy, um, trying to create suspense. And so, obviously, early influences were Hitchcock, especially you know Psycho. I, I love Evil Dead; it's got a fond place in my heart, especially for the soundtrack. I mean, I think that soundtrack is phenomenal. Like I have walked out of the room watching that, and then just listened, and and it's just insane. And then you to go in there and, and turn. The volume off and just watch the pictures and it's kind of whatever you know so I, I kind of yeah I just love so anything that sort of has drawn me to um to suspense is what I like I mean I like um you know this going way back to David Lynch and Blue Velvet for that sort of psychosexual weird element of um here's normal America but really how normal is it um so yeah those sort of films that create a lot of tension are where I'm drawn to so next up was The Reef. Now, mm -hmm. this was a big step forward uh, just in the scope of shooting sure. on the ocean mm -hmm. uh, and it's sharks. This is ground that's been trod many times before, mm -hmm. rarely as well as as The Reef or uh, mm -hmm. all of the uh, those that follow Jaws. Mm -hmm. um, so what decided you, what made that choice for yeah. you on doing a shark picture? Well, as you eloquently put at the beginning of your show, you do get pigeonholed pretty quickly. Um, and I knew that if I had this sort of a script, I'd probably get another film up, um, although I was working on other stuff as well. But there was a story that went, had haunted me for a long time. It's a real story that happened off the coast of um, Australia up near a place called Townsville where a boat went down and three people started swimming for land and the sharks started to just follow them and stalk them and knock them off one by one. And... Because it had stayed with me so long, I just thought, well, if it stayed with me, I'm not that special. I'm sure it will really affect other people as well, you know. So um, I started researching that one. And, yeah, it became apparent to me that there was a lot of drama and tension in this film. And um, maybe I should take that one as my next project. So were you daunted by the fact that there had been so many within the, uh, the sub-jaws genre? Well, it's interesting you say that because in Australia, there'd been none. That I made the first yeah. shark film in Australia, although Open Water is inspired by an Australian story. But, yeah, of course, I was aware of all that. And and really what The Reef was trying to – because you look at those films, and I don't know about you, but to me, they're, they're good for a laugh. I don't actually see them as 
a, a serious horror film or you know film that's going to really get me on the edge of my seat. I see. Yeah, Sharknado is not making yeah. you pee your pants. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's something for a bit of fun, you know, if you want to just sit there and have a chuckle. So I, I and and you know, Jaws is like the big. Um, well, it started the blockbuster. It can't be competed with. It's on on another level. Um, so my my philosophy was just do the opposite of Jaws. Try and be as real as possible. Try and, and try and make grounded in and you know like almost found footage. Footage, you know, um, try and keep it almost documentary like. Um, yeah, don't go for a, a big uh, emotional story. Just just keep it grounded. And so yeah, I kind of tried to make it as real and serious as possible. So it'd be in opposition to all those films that have come since George Jaws. Well, there's a great, uh, all of your movies have a great sense of character. The people feel real. They feel like they, they had a life before the opening titles and it continued after. Well, for some of them. Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> and, uh, and so character seems to be something that's very important. First of all, you, you can't have suspense without rooting for no, the characters. Um, but how much CG did you use in The Reef? When you mean CG, I used compositing. I didn't use any 3D. So all of it is actual shark footage. Yeah, yeah. I, I think in in stocked there are a couple. There's of a couple. Shots. There's a couple of shots which because you know the the great white is a protected species, so there's you know some things I couldn't do with it. So there is a couple of shots where you use actually physical shark, and one shot where we used CG. Right. So um, when you were making the reef, yeah. were there scenes that you had written? into the script that you just could not achieve in the real world of shooting? Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, so I'd kind of modify them to the footage. So I always knew, you know, you kind of go out there knowing what you want because you want the shark to breach close to the people. So, but definitely the footage, like you said before, the footage really influences what you, you end up shooting. Had you been a scuba diver before doing the reef? Uh, no, I'm a surfer, though. I'm in the water a lot. So, uh, okay. um, well, you're Australian after yeah, all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> in fact, it was kind of funny because for, um, for the reef, we shot down in uh, South Australia where there's a lot of sharks where they shot the sharks for jaws, actually, the real sharks. Um, and I was surrounded in, in, on a boat for four days by huge great whites coming up out of the water and doing all their wonderful stuff. And, and then, you know, you come home and you paddle out on your surfboard. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've So I'd love to know, and for Blackwater as well, mm. when you first finished the movie and you first saw it projected for an audience, mm. what was that experience like? You've been working for years yeah. to, to finally make your movie. There it is. It's on the big screen. There's 300 people or a hundred or whatever. Mm, Tell mm. me what that experience was like for you. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I, I just keep on seeing the things I wish I'd done. Before, <laughs> yeah. <know>? yeah. <laughs> it's hard. And also, cause you've been in that edit room and you know, it's been such a process. I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's nice to see people react and, and, you know, and uh, recently I just did a Q&A for Larissa Stalked and after it there were people asking serious questions and things like that. So that you, you're kind of hoping that they're really enjoying it. But for me personally, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, why don't I? Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah, still, yeah. It yeah, would have been so much better if I hadn't listened to so-and-so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, how much input did your producers or your distributor have into, well, The Reef, for example? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, in the early days, they all want cast. Like, that seems to be, like, the holy grail, give me cast, give me cast. Um, but, you know, on the budget we had this time, and, in fact, in all my budgets, I haven't really been able to afford big cast. So it just becomes this dream wish that you spend much too much time talking about <laughs> and then reality sets in and goes oh well we'll just go for some good solid australian actors instead you know just um, go for the best ones not for the yeah exactly player. rather yeah. than the ones with the name um so they're, they're very i think in pre they're very keen on that and then of course it's all about making sure the money ends up on the screen so you know it's constant discussions because i've often described filmmaking as the bastard child of art and commerce you know that, that you can't really you can't really get away from the fact that it costs a lot of money to make a film um so i think you uh, you if you ignore that it's at your own peril um so yeah i'm in constant discussion trying to you know i you know i don't know about you but it's always horse trading isn't it it's like constant compromise which will i get away with what can i get more for how can i there's get that never shot? enough yeah there's never enough never enough i think even on the big films there's probably never enough so um yeah, was so, the reef your most expensive film? Uh, no, Blackwater Abyss was probably the biggest budget, yeah. Oh, really? Interesting, mm. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it has a bigger scope and everything, yeah. It's got slightly bigger stars. We had to build a whole tank for that one because, um, uh, we couldn't find a cave to do it in, and all the tanks were taken when we wanted to do it, so yeah. I'm going to go back to the audience question because yes, mm. I've I I know exactly what you're talking about when you're watching. Oh, why mm. did I do that? <laughs> uh, and why did I put that take? Yeah. But in suspense and horror, as in comedy, the reaction of the audience is visceral and physical. Mm -hmm. So the gratification you must have had when you see popcorn boxes flying yeah. and people yeah. jumping out of their seats. Yeah. No, that's dead true. In fact, the screening we just had, I, they had me up the front. And I said, can I go be moved to the back? I just want to watch the audience and see if yeah. they jump when I'm hoping they're going to jump. And they did. So it was all very satisfying. You're, you're right. It's satisfying from that perspective. And it's not, don't get me wrong, I don't sit there the whole film going, oh, my God. It's just, um, you know, it's, in fact, there's some parts I get taken away and go, wow, that worked really well. Um, yeah. and But, you know, you just find those little niggly moments, don't you? Yeah. Well, your films have played theatrically in nations around the world, not so much in the U.S., which is mm. a shame because mm. I wasn't able to see either yeah. the Blackwater or the Reef in a theater. But fortunately, I have an 86-inch television and <laughs> all that. So in 4K and the yeah, whole thing. Yeah. But, um, but so how do you plan for the movie? Obviously, you plan for the best possible projection and the mm. best possible circumstances, but knowing that a lot of people are going to see it shrunk down. Mm. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, you've got everything from a, a iPhone to a cinema screen you've got to cater for these days. It's, um, it is really tricky. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know if I, I think I just, I don't actually think about that too much. I just kind of go out there and try and make the best movie I can make. Um, because I think if you're trying to think about your framing for all those mediums, it could send you a little bit nutty, I think. You know, just... <laughs> yeah. Well, your films are real movie movies in that, yeah. you know, they are meant for the big screen. They play best on the big screen. Oh, thank you. The beautiful surround mix and all that. Um, mm. So moving on to Blackwater Abyss, mm. this is your first sequel. And yeah. so tell me about how making a sequel is fraught by trying to satisfy what the original movie provided 
and yet bring something fresh and original to it without going too far afield of what the audience is looking for. Yeah, that's right. And I guess with both these, they're kind of sequels in name only. They're kind of standalone films, both Blackwater Abyss and The Restalked. And I, I guess it was just trying to get some cut through in a very crowded market. The, the, both those films did well. So we figured if we sort of title them similarly, that there'll be a little bit of market recognition. Um, so really that's the beginning and end of the likeness, really. Yeah. There's not in the script. But in terms of style, for sure, because, um, you know, once again, every time you make one of the, I don't know, every time I've made one of these films, there's always somebody says, let's use animatronics, let's shoot it, you know, in a, in a very stylized fashion. And I have to keep on telling people, you know, my shtick is keep it as real as possible. Um, you know, I think that's what people appreciate. And that's what sets me apart from these other films. But there are but some shots that seem like there were created crocodiles for them. Yeah, there's a couple in, in Blackwater Abyss. Once again, there's a couple of shots I couldn't get. I mean, we tried to get them, but we couldn't get them. Um, and... But they're the minority of shots, the majority are real crocodiles. Well, let's talk about location, too. The, mm. All of your films are set in what a, an L.A. audience would consider to be quite exotic locales, yeah. maybe not for an Australian. Yeah. But uh, but uh, Blackwater Abyss is one in particular that seems quite exotic. So tell me about the the process of, of working on location, bringing in your crew and your cast. Yeah, well, that one was a, um, I'm glad you say that because that was a real sleight of hand because our locations were all within 30 minutes of um, Brisbane, which is the capital of Queensland up north. Right. Um, so we didn't have to travel very far at all. But certainly with the two reefs, I've had to go to other, and I don't know if you know about my um, found footage but, from the jungle, but that one also. Oh, yeah, the jungle yeah. in particular is maybe mm. the most exotic of all. Yeah, that's right. So of all those, I've had to go to location. And um, we've all, you know, before those, it's been in water, so it's it's just difficult. Um, you know, some of the war stories from the restored were that, um, you know, we were, we were working, we would try and work not boat to boat because it's so horribly frustrating. I think I would have killed someone um, just from the frustration of trying to line up boats. But um, uh, so we're in the water, you know, so you're getting up at five thirty, putting on a wetsuit, and standing in water for ten hours a day, which is, you know, not a good thing for the body, but. Um, you know, we're off this beach, and um, one day we're on the beach filming, and an actual shark swam through the where we'd be, where we were filming. It wasn't a big shark, but you know. And another day, a, a girl, uh, one of our camera assistants, was um, walking through in the water, and she trod on a ray and got a barb in her leg. So she was in hospital for four days with a, on you know, painkillers wow. and stuff. Yeah, so they're, they're very real environments, and then of course you got the weather, um, which you know. Uh, wind on the water is a horrible thing when you've got cutters and reflectors and stuff and there's a 30 um, you know mile an hour wind pouring through so um, yeah on the whole it's tricky it is it's tricky but the locations you know they all provided something so we've uh, the restored we had to be north because we we're shooting in winter so it had to be warm enough for the actors to not freeze constantly and um, we needed open horizon so that we're shooting to nothing um, so that we can then add islands or take out boats or whatever very easily um, and then we needed this tidal plane which in that case was difficult because at low tide we had to walk 150 sort of meters out to where the water got deep again and then at high tide we had to retreat back to the beach so yeah they're all tricky well, what's interesting about your two sequels is they are not direct sequels. One doesn't pick up where the last no, one no, left no. off. They're yeah. they're titled the same and yeah. the same subject matter. Yeah. But, uh, so um, the success of these films, 
uh, has that kept you from working? You talked about the big sci-fi epic that mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you're close to, but has it kept you from doing some of your uh, cherished projects? Uh, yeah, look, it's much harder, like you were saying before, once you're pigeonholed, you're pigeonholed. So I've got this wonderful black comedy, which is... Um, I, you know, the tagline is Spinal Tap meets uh, Dracula, which, you know, I would love to make. Um, <laughs> I want to see that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, about this band, you know, on their, this heavy metal band on their last legs that stumbled into this town that's full of vampires and they have to beat them off with their music sort of stuff. Um, and that's a real pet project. And I've got other ones. But, yeah, like, you know, it's, it's just I'm the shark crocodile guy. So <laughs> yeah. that's all I get. So, yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's much more difficult. Well, what are the real um, the real obstacles that you have to climb over when you're working entirely on locations? You don't have studios at your disposal. What what are the things that are toughest for you? Mm, I think the weather's certainly from because we're out in the water, yeah. so we lost a whole day shooting just because it rained that day. Like where we were was meant to be the, one of the driest parts of Australia, but I don't know if it's climate change or what. We got a bit of rain, and um, that just wiped us out, you know, uh, and, and you, uh, we tried to go to, I had to rewrite a whole scene because one of the actors wasn't there, the scene in the house with the, there's meant to be a mother with those two girls, but anyway, um, to go and do an interior just because it was raining that day and we couldn't shoot out there. So we had to shoot an interior, but you know, we didn't have an actor. So <laughs> <laughs> quickly wrote out the actor and we had to go off and shoot that. So definitely the weather in terms of wind and rain and, and it, you know, continuity, obviously, one day you're shooting and it's sunny, and the next day you're shooting and it's cloudy. So that's difficult. And then once you're in water, as they all say, don't work with children and in water and with animals, um, it just becomes <laughs> another level of difficulty. You know, even just to walk across to talk to the actor, you're sludging through this water, you know, you can feel how much more energy it takes. One day I had my script and the wind just ripped out of my hand and it landed in the water and it just became a big thing of paper mache I was just <laughs> what am I meant to be doing here you know uh, just yeah just it's just difficult because because of the weather well the reef stocked is it seems to be a relationship movie it's more like mm. a metaphor about a, a relationship going bad so mm. tell me about what motivated the characterizations and the storyline yeah, sure. Um, so um, I, I, you know, I did when I did the reef, it was a success. Um, it's uh, a, a, probably an indie darling in some ways, and um, uh, people kept on coming to me with these shark films, but I wasn't really that interested because they're all more like Sharknado things uh, that I've sort of aren't my stick. Um, so uh, I was hap- I happened to go to this theater and see this play called Lethal Indifference, which is all about. Um, domestic abuse and um you know it really stayed with me i mean i was aware of the issue, the issue anyway because in australia a woman dies every week from it um and at the same time being a surfer i i knew that surfers call sharks the man in the gray suit so um those two ideas collide and i thought well maybe i can make a shark film which is more like an allegory about domestic violence and make it you know um the shark the man in the gray suit so it's not so much about a shark although it is of course because it's a shark thriller and most people see it like that but for me and for others that want to interpret it this way it can be more about relationships and about that so yeah that was what sort of motivated me just to to, to write another shark script because I never really thought I would um and yeah I just got down to writing and it was a lot of fun and I could make it work and so I got I wrote the script 
well, what has changed about the way people consume your movies? You know, mm -hmm. starting with Black Water, there was a lot of theatrical for independent uh, thrillers, uh, and there was a lot of distance there. Since that film, and that's not very long ago, mm -hmm. the platforms have changed. Mm -hmm. Streaming has become big, the pay TV <coughs> issue, uh, yeah. watching on your iPhone, things like that. Tell me how that's affected you. Yeah, I just feel that, you know, I don't know about you, but I just feel there's so much content out there. There's sometimes I wonder, why am I bothering to make another film? Isn't there enough? <laughs> isn't there enough? Con there's already enough content out there. I mean, you know, it's impossible to choose from all your streaming services and all your new episodes. And yeah, you've got a thumbnail on Netflix and yeah, who yeah, knows? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I've got teenage sons and um, I know that they're, they're on their phone, they're watching a screen and they might have another screen and you're just going, well, the attention span is of all of, you know, five seconds um <laughs> I, yeah and then you know i don't know about in america but in australia people are still nervous of going to the theater because of covid and and or the cinema mm -hmm. i mean and, and and so i think all those things play into this fact that it's just hard to imagine yeah yeah kind of i sometimes crave the days when there were cinemas and <laughs> that was about it you know yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. or you know uh, it's just there's just a, a ton of content out there and it doesn't seem to be stopping so I don't, I don't well, know. I think what it really means is you'd get much less time in, in the spotlight. Well, the restocked is premiering uh, on Shutter here in the US. So uh, it's before theatrical or in lieu of theatrical. Mm. It's on demand, it's on Shutter. So it's really kind of wonderful that there is a network devoted mm. to, uh, mm. you know, a, a service devoted to curated horror films and thrillers like Shudder. And I know my last movie, Nightmare Cinema, came out directly on Shudder. Uh, your film is on Shudder. Do you look at them as as heroes? Yeah, or... I mean, anyone, I mean, it's really great that, you know, like, unfortunately here in Australia, horror is not even considered as, you know, like, it's the, I guess it's the population size, but it's not that people don't want to necessarily see it, but there's no outlet for it. There's no sort of excitement about it. You know, a lot of our um, films get funded through the government helping, not doing the whole thing, but just putting, but they don't seem to want to do any horror or, or thrillers like that. So, uh, yeah, no, it's absolutely fantastic. There are outlets and, and I'm, I'm really happy that Shudder have come on board because, you know, it's hopefully getting to the right sort of people and, and it's getting an audience. One of the great things about Shudder is that it is curated. It's not like mm. Netflix where there's just yeah. a bunch of thumbnails and you just flip a coin and, and make a yeah. choice. But, um, you know, I, I shot a pilot in 2000 in Australia and it's the only time I've been there. I was there for six weeks and I had the best time and crews are amazing there because they choose by the project. They're, oh, yeah, I don't really like this movie. Yeah, right. Not, not by what the work is, but how much they like it. And, <laughs> and, and the way of life there is it's, it's a really terrific balance between work and real life or real life r-e-e-l versus R -E -E -L. Yeah, 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 and yeah. and i love the the spirit of the the filmmaking community there yeah yeah no definitely uh, i feel look it was difficult get crewing on this one because of covid again queensland had become this covid safe spot and so a lot of american productions were jumping in because they they thought it was safe and they could keep on filming. And so they sucked up a lot of crew. So it was, I kept uh, on losing the crew because um, obviously they could have paid a lot more. But um, yeah, no, I think uh, this crew was fantastic on the restore. They've all been fantastic because as you say, once they commit, they're really there, you know, like 
doesn't really they don't really mind it seems that they're standing in mud and water and, <laughs> and you know it's just like that's okay this is, let's just get this film made so yeah there is a certain level of camaraderie or at least i have found in all my crews uh, are your crews relatively small yeah i think so yeah i mean i shoot with two cameras so that kind of blows it out a little bit but um apart from that yeah it's what was the biggest obstacle or challenge in the making of Reef Stalked? Oh, you know, I think um, because we're in a remote location and we're in the time of COVID and all that, it really hit our budget. So we, we you know, all of a sudden what we thought we had, we didn't quite have as much because of COVID mainly because having to pay higher wages and then um, accommodation really became an issue because um, there wasn't enough accommodation around and transport to a remote location. So in retrospect, might have been really the location was just a little stretch too far. If we could have found somewhere closer to a major centre, that would have probably really helped the budget and that would have really helped stretch um, what I wanted to do. Well, in this film, you also personally handled camera on mm. a lot of the shark footage. So tell me how what was the plan and how you saw that through? It's rare that a director does what is basically second unit photography, particularly when you're talking about a uh, man eating fish. Um, but tell yeah. me about how you planned it and went about it, what your process was. Yeah, no, um, when we shoot sharks, like, um, you know, the thing with shooting a wild animal is, I don't know if you know, but, you know, is that um, they do whatever they like. And a lot of the time, they're just not hanging around. They just, you know, they take the bait and then for hours, there's nothing. See ya. nothing. Yeah, exactly. It's just like sitting around getting burnt. Um, and um, and so my main cinematographer, he had all the gear and everything and was in the cage for the sharks. But um, I was sitting on top with a, you know, like a GoPro-like camera on a stick. Um, and what would happen is that um, when the shark finally decided to come back, it'd take him a good three or four minutes to get in the cage because uh, he had to get, well, not three or four, two or three, maybe he had to get all his gear on, you know, get back in. Uh, whereas the camera over the side on a stick was there automatically. So I would just be doing that sort of and trying to line up the shark and getting little bits and grabs that way while he would be doing the more beautiful, longer shots and that. So the um, hero shots. Yeah, yeah the hero shots. Um, so that was one way it worked. And then the other way was just for cutaways without the shark, I would just go down. I live about 10 minutes from the beach here. <laughs> nice. Go down with my snorkel and mask and sort of get some shots of the, you know, this and that. And there's a, there's a spear fishing shot in there, which is just me and my friends. We, we bought a dead fish from the fish shop and put it down <laughs> under the water and went did, did a bit of spear shooting that day. So yeah, it's, um, yeah. Well, let's talk a little about the the evolution of the tools of filmmaking from the yeah. time you did Blackwater up mm. to the reef stocked. When you talk about the GoPros, but mm. uh, the the tools become lighter and more manipulable. So tell me about how your experience metamorphosed over the few years. You know, absolutely, especially with water. The GoPros, I just I just love them because they shoot at four K. I mean, I've got to say that's the downside to all this digital technology. They want you to shoot everything out 4K and it's just like, oh, my God, double the amount of data, double the amount, of, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's a pain. But um, but in terms of the actual cameras and that, of course, GoPros are fantastic, especially around water. But then also drones, like, you know, the days of having to hire a helicopter and, you know, how expensive they were and all that sort of stuff is just gone. You just go, I want a shot here. The drone goes up, gets it. It's just amazing, really. I, you know, it's just a fantastic thing. So... I, yeah, it just seems to be getting like on those levels, just better and better for indie filmmakers. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just the, the, this, the, the exhibition demands of higher resolution sometimes are a bit of a pain. Yeah, it's interesting. GoPros look gorgeous, but you can usually tell because there's a slight stutter to them. That, but it gives it kind of a documentary feel anyway, which only contributes to what kind of movie you're making. Yeah, right. Yeah, maybe. What would you do with a studio film? I mean, uh, something shot on sound stages or mm. practical locations in the middle of a big city. Uh, are you looking forward to doing that kind of story, or do you want to go back and and back into the water and back into the beast? I don't really want to go back into the water. <laughs> it's a hard slog. It really is. Uh, the human body's just not made to be in the water that long. No, it'd be great to do a big film. I mean, I guess, look, I guess you trade one set of uh, issues for another and, I, and everything I've heard and read is that you might be fighting the elements, but you'd probably be, you know, studio heads and producers will be circling around you like sharks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? literally, yeah. Yeah. But other than just a studio, I mean, on a, on a sound stage and that sort mm -hmm. of thing, would you, do you look forward to the time where you're in an urban environment, for example? Sure. I mean, for me, it's all driven by story. If it's a good story, I don't really care if I'm on a sound studio or, or whatever, if I'm telling it in a, in a, you know, an interesting, true to the story way. But yeah, it'd be great to do something. Urban. Now, you're a writer as well as a director. So uh, tell me what you prefer, the solitary, solitariness of sitting in front of a keyboard where you actually create anything your mind can come up with, or the practicality and the social of being surrounded by a group of talented people that you're the captain of that ship. Well, I guess it alternates, doesn't it? I mean, you probably felt this too. Sometimes there's nothing better than just sitting down and writing. And other times you're going, I, I just got to get out of this house. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it can be very lonely. <laughs> it can be very lonely, yeah. And likewise, on set, there's nothing better than hanging out with people when it's all going right. But when things are going wrong, you're kind of going, why am I having to deal with you? <laughs> and you're really looking forward to 5 a.m. Saturday. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. Well, will there be another reef? Will there be another Blackwater? Uh, it really depends on the story. If there's a story that comes across my desk that I think, wow, I can't not make this, then sure. But I'm not actively pursuing those sort of films at the moment, no. Do you prefer writing for yourself or are you open to uh, other writers writing? No, I'm totally open to anything. Like I say, if it's a good script, if I sit down and I start reading and I can't put it down at the end of it, I go, wow, that was amazing. That's, that's exciting. Um, you know, it just ha so happens that in between those moments, I start to write and they tend to be because I'm known as the guy that's crocodiles and sharks. They tend to be <laughs> they get finance, you know. Well, being in Australia, that seems like an obvious thing to do, too. Here, people, to do a first-time horror movie, they'll do a slasher movie or, yeah. or Teens in the Woods, something yeah. like that. Australia has the mangroves. It has the ocean. It has the sharks. Yeah, and yeah. it seems like there is a difference between being raised as a filmmaker in uh, Down Under as compared to the U.S., yeah, no, I totally agree. I think you've got a lot more, well, it feels like, and, and I think the whole world sees Australia as this exotic frontier still where, you know, there's more deadly animals per square inch than anywhere else in the world. You know? <laughs> uh, so it really does lend itself. And the outback, of course, which is this vast, you know, sort of deserty type place that you know, any crazy could hang out there forever and not get found. So 
um, yeah, we, we, I think you're right. I think our, our, uh, our geography and our, our landscapes orientate first-time filmmakers in different directions. Well, there are so many domestic filmmakers in Australia. Um, who do you have any local heroes of your own there? Ah, oh, wow. You know, the um, Peter Weir is the... Oh, yeah, from that, you know, it was from that ilk for sure. I mean, George Miller, I've always loved the Mad Max films. And yeah. I can't yeah. Wait, yeah, they're, they're great. I can't wait to see his next one. I've forgotten Thousand Days of Solitude or something. It looks yeah, like it looks great. Yeah, yeah. So he's obviously a, a hero. I mean, I, I really enjoyed The Babadook, Jennifer Kent. I thought she was, mm. that was a good film. That was interesting. Fantastic. Um, so, uh, yeah, and probably there's a few others I just aren't on the top of my head at the moment. Um, but, yeah, uh, the old guard, yeah, well, the old guard, such as Beresford and um, those, they're obviously wonderful filmmakers. Yeah, there was really, in the 1970s, there was this sudden yeah, surge. Nobody would heard of films from Australia and the States yeah. before. And there's an explosion. There's Beresford and Weir and, mm. and uh, all these fascinating people. And now, yeah, like you say, Jennifer Kent with the, mm. with the Babadook. Mm. Such great genre stories mm. with, with, they're intelligent. They're not teenage horror. They're meant for an adult audience. Mm -hmm. And I think you make movies that cross that uh, cross over, you know, right. you've got relationships that are quite adult and thrills that thrill the adolescent in us as well. Good. Great. Uh, that's great to hear. Cause that's kind of what I'm trying to do. Excellent. What are the movies that uh, maybe within this animals attack subgenre mm -hmm. that, that you've really found exciting? Well, obviously, Jaws. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the granddaddy. Uh, yeah, that is the granddaddy. You can't go past that one. Um, it's just this one that um, I, um, you know, I really quite enjoy called The Edge. It's got a bear in it. Do you, did you ever see that one? Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was pretty intelligent. Um, and then, I don't know, off the top of my head. I mean, you know, for the more relaxed, you know, this is just going to be a ride and a romp obviously Anaconda and those. Oh, sort of yeah. Um, but for serious or at least, you know, crossover, slightly more elevated. I don't know. Sorry. It's not coming. Nothing's coming to me. Uh, no worries at all. <laughs> well, we almost forgot to talk about um, the uh, ABCs of death. Oh, yeah. G is for gravity. G is for gravity. Yeah. Tell me, what is the process there? Did they just give you a tiny check and say, go make your movie? Exactly. <laughs> And tell they me about said, the experience. Um, yeah, well, they just said, you know, uh, here's a little bit of money. What letter do you want? Or oh, they gave me a letter, I think. Uh, G. And once again, because I was actually, you know, sort of having a slight love affair of GoPros at the time. And um, I lived near the <laughs> beach. I kind of just went, what's what can I do for this tiny amount of money that's, you know, going to be fun? Um, and so, yeah, I just went and drowned myself. <laughs> How does it feel to be one of 26 <laughs> in a yeah, row? That, yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, no, whatever. I don't, I don't I didn't, you know, it was good to be an Australian representative, I guess. I was maybe the horror film Olympics. I, I got chosen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great how international they are. Yeah, and, yeah. And I'm a big fan of the anthology genre yeah, anyway. Yeah. But 26 a is a big load. Yeah, that is. That is. Yeah. yeah. Well, Andrew, uh, thank you so much for joining us here. I'm a big fan of your work and everybody can see the reef stock now on shutter and on VOD. And I really look forward to the next one. Is there a next one set? Well, like I said, I'm trying to get uh, melodic vampire slayer or uh, spinal tap meets Dracula off the ground at the moment. Um, right. 
so that's that. And then I've got a couple of thriller scripts. One's called The Wall, which is about the Mexican American uh, uh-huh. wall, but I think it's a little political, a little hot at the moment. <laughs> well, we like that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I've got a few that I'm trying to get out there. That's great. Well, thanks again for taking the time to join us here on the slab and wishing you all the best and really great to meet you. Thanks, Mika. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.